Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Kemper Donovan. I'm Catherine Broback. And this week we are discussing the novel Towards Zero, a fan favorite of many readers and listeners out there. Many of you have shared with us that you are very excited that we have at long last reached Towards Zero in this, the second half of the Christie of that we are now embarking on. I know. I know. It seems crazy. It does seem crazy. But you know what? That means we have 33 titles to go, and this is the first. So let's begin and uh, talk a little bit about the publication history. So it was published in uh, June in 1944 by Don Mead in the U.S., and then the next month in July by Collins Crime. The novel was first serialized in the U.S. in Collier's Weekly, as it so often was, in three installments in May 1944. The interesting point about that is the title that it was serialized under, which is Come and Be Hanged! Exclamation point. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I much prefer Towards Zero. Towards Zero is actually, in some ways, one of her better titles that we've come across, given what it means structurally. I agree. There's a thematic through line to the title mm-hmm. that is pleasing, and we don't always get that. <laughs> Nurse your own titles, etc. <laughs> I suppose we should get right into it and talk about our victims. I will start with our first victim, who is Mr. Treves, an elderly retired solicitor who dies from a heart attack after going up three flights of stairs. And then we have Lady Camilla Tresillian, who is an elderly invalid who's still very sharp, who owns an estate called Gull's Point and is bashed over the head in bed. Okay, let's talk about our suspects. We do have a closed circle mystery here of sorts because we are in a, a somewhat isolated setting of a rather inaccessible house on the water. The geography of this is actually laid out for us in a little map in the beginning of the book prior to the prologue. So that is uh, in and of itself a clue. Whenever there is any sort of illustration laid out in a Christie, it tends to be important. Not always, but it tends to be important. I always remember the train compartment diagram in Murder on the Orient Express right. appears in the same place, which is so devious that she put that in there. So our suspects are everyone staying at or near this house, Gulls Point. And the first is Neville Strange, who is a well-known tennis player and all-around sportsman, well-liked. And he was once the ward of the late Lord Matthew Tresillian, who was Lady Tresillian's husband, and who has left him part of his estate. Right. And then we have Audrey Strange, who is Neville's ex-wife, who is this pale ghost of a delicate creature after she supposedly has been spurned after eight years of marriage by Neville, who left her for... Kay Strange, Neville's current wife, who is much younger and pretty much seems to be a social climbing vixen. She has a weirdly close friendship with another breathtakingly beautiful specimen. Who would that be, Catherine? And Ted Latimer, who is, outside of being very good looking, he's maybe using that in a, shall we call it a gigolo-esque 
sort of thing. Uh, it seems like he spends a lot of time with rich, older women at beachside hotels. Let's, let's leave it at that. Next up, we have Mary Alden, who is Lady Tresillion's companion. So then we have Thomas Royd. He doesn't say much. Um, and he grew up with Audrey, and he's on vacation from Melee. He has an arm that doesn't quite work, and he's like yeah. introduced originally. Like He kind of hobbles weirdly. He's meant to seem deliberately odd, I think. Yeah. And then finally, we have Angus McWhorter, who doesn't seem to know any of the people that we just mentioned. He's very much an outsider, but he had been to Gull's Point uh, way before the major events of the novel in an attempted suicide. He is revisiting the site of his attempted suicide when the events of the novel take place. So let's get right into it and talk about the world as it appears to be. So our story begins with a slightly odd prologue that features Mr. Treves and some of his legal friends. There's a mention made of the Carstairs case, and Alan Carstairs is the name of the man who uttered, why didn't they ask Evans? And then they also reference this other lawyer, Old Depleche, who is very much featured in Five Little Pigs. That's Sir Montague Depleche, who was Caroline Carroll's defense lawyer. Although in this reference, he's very clearly stated to be the prosecutor. So mm-hmm. I found that odd, but I think that that was a, the same character. They're all discussing a case, but Treves is sort of thinking off to himself. And he muses on the fact that they are only talking talking about the facts as presented in a trial when they're talking about the crime. They're talking about the murder and the um, legally admissible details surrounding a murder. And what he says is that what they should be talking about is that murder is an end point. A murder happens because of everything heading towards that moment or heading towards zero. Right. And he said, you know, he says, you're all thinking about the law, but I actually, for once in my life, would like to think about the people. Because when you think about the people involved in a murder, the murder is where it ends, not where it begins, because where the where right. law the law begins, obviously, is with the crime. Right. But you know, his point is when people are involved in a crime, a lot of things had to happen to get to the point where the murder takes place, and that's this notion of heading towards zero. So and it's like right away at the very start of the book, we have of our title and it kind of sets the tone, which is slightly, I wouldn't even say creepy, but just a little darker tinged than what we're used to. And also what we're going to find immediately after is that structurally this is a, a little bit weird. Yeah. I We have seen this before. Christy likes to open up with a, a sort of expansive section with Roman numeral sections introducing disparate characters. She did it in Death on the Nile I think most memorably. It's just... Oh, and, it's, it's, and then there were none that has um, mm-hmm. separated sections introducing all of our characters. Yeah, so we have it here. It's just that they're really separated. So much so that we're like, how are these going to even become connected? Which is intriguing. And of course they do ultimately become connected. So with that in mind, we cut to Angus McWhorter, who is recovering in a sanitarium slash hospital for a ruined shoulder from his thwarted suicide attempt. He did in fact throw himself off a cliff at Cole's point because he had this old boss who essentially wanted him to lie and he refused to lie. He's just that morally upstanding that he refused to 
do that. Uh, so, of course, what did he get in return for that? His wife left him for his best friend. <laughs> so, right. so he was really down in the dumps and he tried to kill himself and he threw himself off the cliff and a tree stopped him. And there were people that happened to be there and they saw it happen. So he was very fortunate, or if you ask him in this moment, unfortunate to, in fact, survive that attempt. And he is considering killing himself again, but the nurse tells him he's not going to do it. She says no suicide ever tries again. According to her, it's because Providence has a plan in mind for him. There must be something that he's meant to do or accomplish. And we actually did see that same point made by none other than Mr. Satterthwaite in The Man from the Sea, another uh, Christie story involving suicide. We will see these would-be suicides come up again in Christie novels, and I think they're kind of indicative of coming from someone who herself went through a dark period. She seems to have a lot of um, sympathy for these characters. In any case, that's Angus McWhorter. Right. And then all of a sudden we find ourselves in the company of Superintendent Battle. What? We have not seen. Yeah, we haven't seen him in a while. And he's eating with his wife and they get called by the headmistress of uh, their youngest daughter's school, only to be informed that their daughter is in fact the school thief. <laughs> Which, like, a call every parent wants to get. When he talks to his daughter, it turns out they've been psychologically quizzed by word games. <laughs> for several hours. She's already been basically humiliated in front of a bunch of the other girls. And so she eventually panics because she can't take the interrogation anymore. She didn't do anything, but she was so afraid and so distressed that she confessed in order to end it. We have seen that before. Sad Cypress. Sure. She doesn't actually confess, but she almost does. Smash cut to London, and Kay Strange is furious with her husband, Neville, because she wants to go on a better vacation than seeing his family at Gull's Point. She's not a fan. And he finally comes around to her point saying they could change the order of their vacation, wait out the tennis season, which he's playing in, and uh, go at the end of September at the same time as his ex-wife, Audrey, who he had just run into in the park. And Kay does not like that idea whatsoever, but she's essentially bullied into it, in part because she knows that Neville and his wife are both going to inherit the estate of Gull's Point, which is currently being enjoyed as part of a life interest by Lady Tresillion. So when she dies, that estate will go to Neville and his wife, and it's worth about £100,000. Down at Gull's Point, Lady Tresillion's furious because of this undecorous arrangement that Neville's coming down with two women, even if one is his ex-wife. Because here's the thing, Audrey is below Beloved by Lady Tresillian. And she'd had something of a mental breakdown after the divorce. And so um, the end of August and September is when Audrey comes every year. And Lady Tresillian is furious that Neville and Kay are going to ruin this and that it's going to be improper for this arrangement to be happening at the house. So she eventually gets um, Neville, who's visiting nearby, to come over and reassure her it's really what everyone wants. And so finally, she very reluctantly agrees to this. Cut to September. Tennis season is over, and we've learned what a great sportsman Neville is. Charming and genteel, even after a loss that others may not have taken as well as he did. We find out that Kay is still angry over the Audrey thing and has been attending these tennis matches with her way too good of a friend, the aforementioned beautiful Ted Latimer. Neville, Kay, Audrey, Lady Tresillian, her companion Mary, and the family friend Thomas Royd are all at Gull's Point together in the house. Ted is in a hotel that is just a 
ferry ride away across the water. Mr. Treves from our prologue has also decided to take a vacation to take in the sea breeze and relax from his heart condition. So he's at a hotel that is just down the block, essentially, from Gull's Point. And uh, that hotel has a lift up to the third floor since he can't use the stairs, again, due to his bad heart. And um, he plans on going to visit his old friend, Lady Tresillion. So our cast of characters is assembled. At a dinner party where everybody's naturally assembled, crime naturally comes up, as it so often does. Several cocktails into the evening, Treves tells the group a story about how crime surprisingly frequently goes unpunished. It's not even just that there are murderers that you've never heard of lurking about the countryside. It's that the justice system doesn't necessarily um, even punish the cases that are given to it. And so he points to this case of two children many years ago, who'd been playing with bows and arrows, but they were terribly inexperienced, and one of the children was killed. And the other child, who was horribly distraught, was obviously not sentenced with a crime. It was only later that a farmer mentioned, offhandedly, that he'd seen a child months earlier repeatedly practicing arrow shooting in the woods near the accident, thus making it seem very likely that the child was, in fact, a cold-blooded murderer. And Treves implies that the child had a marking of some kind, which he would be able to recognize even to this very day. So here would be a good time to mention that everyone in the room has some sort of marking. Audrey has a scarred ear. Neville's fingers are a weird length. Thomas, of course, has his mangled arm. Ted Latimer, though beautiful, has a weirdly shaped head, etc., Oh, Mary. Uh, Mary has a weird white streak in her hair. She's had yeah. since she was a child. Yeah. Mary has a weird white streak in her hair. I don't know if Kay has an odd marking, but she's just Other so... Other than her intense beauty. Right. She's just so gosh darned <laughs> beautiful. That might be her marking. Anyway, this, so that story ends eerily, and it really is eerie, too. Again, very much in keeping with the tone that Christie's setting in, in this novel. Treves goes back to his hotel, accompanied by Ted and Thomas. And in the hotel lobby, there's a sign hanging on the elevator saying that it's out of order, meaning Treves is going to have to walk up to the third floor. And he's like, okay, I guess I'll just have to go really slow. <laughs> the next morning, poor Mr. Treves is found dead. And we do find out subsequently that the elevators seem to be working perfectly. There had been a little sign slipped in the desk that could be used if it was out of order, but it was working fine. So this, I have to say, is one of my favorite murders in the Christie novel. <laughs> she also admits, even within the book, that it might not have worked. This was not a planned out murder, but it did. And it's just so simple and so cruel that this poor man with a heart condition is made to walk up the stairs and then dies. Anyway, Lady Tristillion does not handle the news of Treve's death well, and on top of matters, the situation in the house has now become untenable. There's like a love six-way going on. It's not a love triangle. It is far more complicated, but basically what it seems like is Audrey is still in love with Neville, who is still in love with Audrey, but who is married to Kay, who is still being pursued by Ted. Tom Thomas also seems to love Audrey, but he may also have a thing for Mary, who definitely has a thing for him. And the Neville-Audrey-Kay situation in particular has been escalating. Um, Neville gets ever closer to trying to confess his never-dying love for Audrey every single day, and his terrible mistake in being with Kay, which is driving Kay to the crazy breaking point. And it ends up culminating in a screaming match on the terrace where Neville says that he's going to try to leave Kay for Audrey. So after this, Lady Tresillion, she's just had it. 
she makes Neville come up to her room and they get into a screaming fight about how he will not embarrass the family like this. And his obligation now is to Kay and he is not to do this again. How dare he? So he storms out to go play billiards with Ted of all people at Ted's hotel. Well, shortly thereafter, Lady Tresillian's maid is found unconscious and Lady Tresillian is found bashed over the head in her bed, very much dead. And there is a golf club, a niblick, which is basically a nine iron or wedge. So it has a heavier club head to it that is found with blood and hair on it near the body. In the meantime, Superintendent Battle. Hey, where have you been, our friend? Mm -hmm. Superintendent Battle has come down to Saltington, which is a nearby town, to stay with his nephew, Inspector James Leach, for some, you know, high-quality R&R, just uncle and nephew chilling, when they get the news of the murder. So Leach and his boss arrange with Scotland Yard to uh, loan out Battle for the case. And so back at Gull's Point, the evidence, let's just say very quickly, starts to add up. Yeah. So (laughs) the Niblick has a clear unsmudged set of Neville's fingerprints on it. And on top of that, in Neville's room, there's a suit on the floor with what appears to be blood on it that seems to have been washed out. Neville also, as we know, inherits the money from the estate with Camilla's Lady Tresillian's death. And he was just in a shouting fight with her before he left for the night. So they could go get that arrest warrant right at that very second. But Lady Tresillian's maid wakes up. Well, she clarifies that Lady Camilla had a rope bell next to her bed, which is connected by hall wires up to the next floor to her maid's room. The maid assures them that Camilla had pulled it. She then hadn't remember why she'd pulled the cord or what she needed from her maid. So pillows were fluffed, etc. And everybody went back to bed. And this was after Neville had been seen leaving because he had been seen leaving the house and he had also been seen on the ferry to the hotel across the water. So there was no way he was at the house during this time frame. Right. So Neville, ever the charming, sunny, lucky sportsman that he is, seems to have been lucky one more time and to be 100% cleared. Now the case has to go back to the other suspects and we get into questions of motive and opportunity. And this is where we find out that, remember we said Neville and his wife would inherit the estate upon Lady Tresillian's death. Well, that's not a very exact phrasing since, of course, Neville technically has two wives. And it turns out that his wife refers to Audrey, not Kay. And Audrey seems to be a little down on her luck at the moment. So that is a big motivation for her since she is inheriting just as much as Neville, i.e. 50,000 pounds. Right. Battle is also reminded of, oh my gosh, our good friends. Hercule Poirot at this very moment, but for a reason that he can't quite put his finger on. So it's originally when they're going through the house. It's only when they've come back to Audrey as someone who would possibly hate Neville enough to frame him that they look again in Audrey's room and Battle realizes that he thought of Poirot because only one of these two like giant iron radiator knob things, they've both been cleaned. It's very tidy in there, but one of them is too polished. And so because Poirot has a little OCD about symmetry. It reminded Battle of Poirot. And so when they look at the knobs, they're blunt objects. One does not have fingerprints and is overly polished. And so when they unscrew it, they find blood in the screws. And on top of this, on Neville's bloodstained suit, there was women's hair, red hair, um, an ash blonde, and a perfume smell. 
But the blonde hair and the perfume were coming from essentially the collar and the inside of the suit. (laughs) And on top of this, outside of Audrey's window, they find a bloody glove that only fits her small hand. And in the rack closet, there's a taped up tennis racket that's been uh, repaired. The um, racket head has been removed from the handle. And the tape has Audrey's fingerprints on it. While this is all happening, Angus McWhorter hasn't actually had a super bad run. He got offered a very highly paid job of the kind he was once good at because this eccentric millionaire has heard of how he was erroneously fired from his old job for being a stand-up guy. And he is hiring him for this huge job in South America. Angus decides just to get full closure before leaving the country and going off on this big job. So he is going to return to the scene of the crime as it were, that cliff from which he jumped near Gull's Point. While he is in the vicinity, two things happen to him. First, and bear with us here, he goes to pick up his dry cleaning, and they haven't done it. So he asks for it back, and he's very annoyed that it hasn't been done. He takes it, and he gets back to his hotel and realizes that this is not his suit, and it smells like rotting fish on the shoulder. That's curious. Then, (laughs) when he's revisiting his suicide cliff spot, he sees a ghostly figure running for the cliff's edge and physically stops her. It's Audrey. And she tells him that she is afraid of being hanged. We kind of know why, because we've seen all this evidence pile up right. on her. She tells him that she's scared. And he puts two and two together. He realizes that Gull's Point is the murder house that everyone's been talking about. Right. And he tells the woman to go home and he says he's going to handle this for her. So then, to make matters weirder, he proceeds to go to Gull's Point the next day. He introduces himself to Mary and he asks for some rope. I'd be a little weirded out, but you know, Mary kind of goes along with it. And so they hunt around for where they would have a coil of rope and they eventually find it in like the junk room. And Angus makes sure that Mary also touches it to confirm that it's in fact wet. That's not a weird scene to have happen. <laughs> yeah. So Battle and Leech then show back up at the house with a warrant for Audrey's arrest. And she, shell-shocked, almost graciously gives in. Angus also shows up at the house and talks to Battle. Audrey is taken away at this point, And Battle tells everyone else that they are going to head out to Starkhead Cliff in a few minutes via boat. Take a nice little journey on the water and discuss some things. So I smell a resolution a-coming. And before we get there, I think we should talk about the world as it actually is via a set of clues. Catherine Brobeck, clue number one. Locked doors. It's an oldie but a goodie. We're told very early on that the hotel in which Treves was staying never locked its doors. We also know that Gull's Point always locks the doors at night. This was the very thing that made it necessary that the murderer was coming from inside the house. It had to be someone inside the house, right? Well, the deduction is, what do we know about this clue from every other Christie story we've ever read? You should never, ever trust it because who knows when someone is going to drop an antiquity on your head out a window. <laughs> so we should always assume that there can be another way into a building. Okay, so clue number two, we're calling the double clue. Nice little reference to our Vera Rosikoff short story, mm-hmm. the, double, the double clue. Uh, what do we know? 
about double clues or just scenarios in which more than one clue crops up in not too large of an area, such as Murder on the Orient Express. It's usually one clue or, you know, four billion clues too many. You're lucky to, <laughs> right. you're lucky to get one physical clue sometimes. So in this case, we have literally bloody fingerprinted clues here, first framing Neville, then framing Audrey. And the deduction here is that something is up with these two frame jobs. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're both innocent, but we certainly shouldn't be taking them at face value. And Neville's was already debunked. Perhaps something is going to happen to make us think a little bit differently about Audrey and our resolution. I couldn't say, but an astute reader should certainly be prepared for that. Clue number three, the someone has a deformity or scar clue is frankly not helpful because so many people have something in the story. But I think it's interesting to look at it as actually the inverse. Everyone's so paranoid and on the hunt for someone who seems, you know, obviously mad or off. And it's also why Audrey gets so much attention because we know she'd had a nervous breakdown. And so the question and the clue here is, what if it's actually somebody without an obvious defect? We've seen variations on this a bunch of times, but I think the deduction is what if you were instead looking for somebody who is outwardly normal, who is in fact a psychopath. Right. And I think this goes to something that's curious about this novel that we haven't covered yet, which is in that wide-ranging opening section where Christy is just piecing together disparate elements, one of them is written from the point of view of the murderer. It's of the murderer plotting out the murder. And we don't even know what right. the murder is. We don't know what any of it means. But in a way that we haven't seen before, because again, we had the fake out version of this in the ABC murders with the right. sections that were from Cuss's point of view. But this is from the murderer's point of view. She is not equivocating about that. And it's very first person serial killer point of view e in almost right. a horror movie-ish kind of way. Like I'm thinking of the Jason movies, for example, that often function uh, with, with that kind of camera work. But what it does, I think, is establish this notion that this is a crazy person. Because usually murderers and Christie aren't crazy. They're usually just desperate for money, you know, or maybe super jealous or something like that, but not psychopaths. And it establishes that this person is truly a psychopath. So there really must be a major mass. Um, right. being worn in this case. So I think even taking a little further, another deduction off of this is maybe we should be zeroing in on the people who seem the most normal and right. the most genial and the most charming. Right. Final clue, Catherine Brobeck. The love triangle that's not... We've seen this before, but this is another case of if there is a love triangle or quadrangle or pentagram or whatever is going on here, <laughs> look very closely at whether or not it's true. And this isn't even so much a clue because it's very directly said and close to the end of the novel, frankly. But Audrey was not being cheated on with Kay. Audrey had left Neville for Thomas's brother, Adrian, but he was killed in a car car accident en route to meet her to run away together. The deduction here very simply is not a love triangle if Audrey tried to leave Neville and she definitely is not the one trying to get him back. 
Right. I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the familiar elements that we find in this novel, which we've seen before. And certainly the love triangulation is one of them. But I think at this point, any astute reader of Christie, given a love triangle in one of these novels, would at the very least just think that all is not as it appears to be. And with this late breaking information in the novel, that should certainly, I think, make us be a red flag. Siren. Yeah. Giant red flag as to what Neville Strange has been claiming are the dynamics here of his relationship with his first wife. All right, so our resolution here, we are out on this boat here with all of the suspects and Angus McWhirter, who really never is a suspect. Spoiler, he didn't do it. And um, Battle literally rocks the boat to knock poor Ted Latimer overboard just to make sure that he can't swim, and he can't. Why does he need to do this? It's because they're looking for a man who shimmied up a rope from the water underneath the house at Gulls Point. Because remember, this house is on a cliff. We are dealing with sheer walls here in addition to our locked doors, which is why this is such a closed circle mystery here. So they're looking for a man who came out of the water and shimmied up a rope through a window, then back out again, thereby committing this murder while never unlocking a door and getting in and out of the house at a time when everyone claims to have an alibi. And if Ted can't swim, that knocks him out. Thomas has, you know, only one functioning arm. And there really is, in that case, only one person who is in the right place. And that one person just happens to be quite an athlete and more than capable of such physical feats. And that would be Neville Strange. Right. And Angus is the one who's told Battle he saw all of this from the cliff on the night of the murder when he'd first gone out there to look at the place where he'd almost ended his life. So part of the reason they're on the boat is to essentially look to see if this is actually possible. In theory, that's what they're doing. But the other thing is that Battle is using the location to throw Neville off so badly that Neville ultimately snaps and in like true serial killer style goes on like a rampage in a childlike voice confessing to everything and about how the only thing that needs to matter is that Audrey is hanged and you know essentially has become an unhinged psychopath on this boat. It's actually kind of brilliant because it seems as though Superintendent Battle is arranging a grand denouement in the Poirot tradition, but what he is in fact doing is springing a trap in the Miss Marple tradition. Correct, he is. Yep. This man is a psychopath through and through, and let's talk about how. So, Neville Strange... A, was the kid with a bow and arrow who killed this other child because of some playground taunt, and his deformity was, in fact, too small of a pinky finger, so with the weird length of his fingers, sure. He, B, almost certainly killed poor Adrian, who is Thomas's brother, who we only learned about, like, two seconds earlier, but um, he killed Adrian, most likely in that car accident, out of spite for having been cuckolded by Audrey when Audrey went for Adrian. And then he, C killed Treves by swapping the sign out for the elevator while the others were drinking and forcing the heart attack on that poor man because he worried that Treves had recognized him when he was telling that story about the bow and arrow incident. And then he D killed Camilla, who had really been like a mother to him, not because of anything Camilla did, but because his entire goal was to frame Audrey, the ultimate victim for murder, and have her hanged. And that is what he is mumbling over and over again in his childlike voice. He just loved her so much, and she had to be punished, right? 
she had to be punished. So here's how it went down. Neville left Lady Tresillian's room after their fight, plucking at the wire for the maid's bell, we're told, runs along the ceiling in the hallway, using a pole that has a hook on its end, which we're also told about. Christy always plays fair. That way, the maid can prove that Lady Tresillian was alive after Neville is seen leaving the house and taking the ferry across the water, thereby giving him his ironclad alibi. This is why Lady Tresillian didn't remember pulling the rope for her maid, because she never did. Then, before Neville met up with Ted during the nearly 45 minutes that are unaccounted for, during which he claims to have been looking for Ted, Neville went down to the water, took his suit off, stuffed it between some rocks, swam across the rather narrow channel we are shown at the front of the book. He shimmied up a rope he'd let down earlier on the sheer side of Gull's Point, which led into his room, put on his other suit, the one that's found with the blood on it, stole into Lady Tresillian's room, and bashed her over the head with that metal knob from Audrey's room stuck into a tennis racket. Incidentally, there's another bit of evidence that frames Audrey, which is that Lady Tresillian was stuck on the right side of her head which would indicate a left-handed murderer, and Audrey is left-handed. Of course, Battle points out that Neville, the tennis player, has a notably strong backhand. Shudder. Again, very dark, this story. Then he takes off the suit, shimmies down the rope, swims across the water, and puts the other suit back on that he'd stuffed in the rocks, going inside the hotel to meet up with Ted. This is why he and Ted note a fishy smell when they're together that evening. It's also this suit that Angus McWhorter ends up getting from the dry cleaners purely by coincidence, since Neville gave that suit with the fishy smell to the dry cleaners under the assumed name of McWhorter. Although, to be fair, Battle says he must have seen the name in the hotel register. Hence, that little mix-up. That is how there came to be a fishy smell emanating from the shoulder of that suit, since it had been stuffed in the rocks, and it is this curiosity that first sends Angus McWhorter on the trail of figuring out the truth. You know, when she confesses Audrey, so the crime basically gives up to battle. Um, she did just have everything over with. She just couldn't emotionally function anymore. Right. And battle, of course, was reminded of his daughter right. who had done the exact same thing. And that was the entire purpose of that weird little scene that introduced battle because he recognized the look in Audrey's eyes. And it was the look that he saw in his daughter's eyes when she was right. confessing to something she hadn't done. So Neville is going to get hanged and Audrey goes to thank Angus for what he's done. And she ends up packing his suitcase and finding out that he never actually did see anyone climbing a rope into the house. He had just figured out what had to have happened, and he came forward as an eyewitness, I'm using air quotes here, to give the evidence needed to stop Neville because he had been so compelled by Audrey at the cliff's edge, and he thought that this was the miracle that she needed, which, of course, is a callback to um, that nurse helping him recuperate after his suicide attempt. He really does have a purpose. It's all very, it's a wonderful life. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George... You really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? You know, it wouldn't be a Christie novel without some love matches to end things. So we've got Audrey, who is inviting herself down to South America with Angus McWhorter, provided they get an expedited marriage license that day. And then they say <laughs> lots of insane things to one another. Oh, it's really not okay. <laughs> at the end of the novel. I mean, here's the thing. This is one of my few tonal quibbles with this novel, which I actually think sustains its dark, eerie tone quite massively throughout. I mean, this is a novel where we've seen Audrey as the victim of a psychopath 
for years on end. And she's finally just been released, not only from criminal prosecution, but the bonds of ever having to deal with this man again. And these are the final lines. Oh, they're so bad. Of the novel between Audrey and Angus. Angus, last time I had my hands on you, you felt like a bird struggling to escape. You'll never escape now, she said. I shall never want to escape. No, no. I also liked that throughout the book, Thomas Boyd has been talking about his undying love for Audrey, but slowly and surely he and Mary Alden grow closer together. And we pretty much get the sense that they're going to end up together. That seems like a reasonable match. I'm totally okay with that match in this book. I'm okay with that match. And then we never are told that it's going to happen, but I think we can be fairly certain that Kay and Ted Latimer after having gone through this ordeal, are finally just going to admit to each other that they're a perfect pair and also just be together. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. So we've got three matches here at the end of the night. I know. Well, as always, before our rankings, we have to talk about some adaptations. Mm -hmm. And we actually have a bunch here. There's not one, but two theatrical adaptations of this novel. And the first was produced in 1945. And it's really interesting because it's the only one of Christie's plays that she wrote on commission. And it also had a U.S. debut, which is very unusual, in Martha's Vineyard, of all places. And that was in the Mm -hmm. summer of 1945. So I'm getting this from a book we haven't mentioned yet, but it's written by Julius Green, who is another modern-day Christie scholar who we were fortunate enough to meet, actually, a couple years back. And he discovered this play, which was pretty much a lost play, this original adaptation of Toward Zero. And he wrote about it in his 2015 book, Curtain Up, Agatha Christie, A Life in the Theater, which I highly recommend. The Schuberts are the ones who commissioned it. You know, the book came out in the U.S. It was a big success, and they commissioned her to write the play for $5,000, which in 1944, $5,000 was approximately $70,000 today. So Christy made a cool $70,000 just for writing the play in the wake of the book coming out. So good for her. Unfortunately, it was apparently terrible. So, <laughs> But what is interesting is that it was set in the open air. I'm quoting Julius Green here on the terrace and in the garden of the house and on the adjacent cliff path. And um, it sounds like it was pretty faithful. It had 13 cast members. Angus McWhorter was in it. There was no superintendent battle, which is not surprising because as we know, Christy loved to cut out her detectives from her theatrical adaptations, but it it apparently had problems. It was not a success when they tried it out in Martha's Vineyard and Lee Schubert himself wrote to Christie saying that she was the only one who could fix it, but I think she just got busy Um, and it languished until 1956 when someone else actually adapted it and Christie just lent her name to the adaptation. I'm still getting this from Julius Green's book. Gerald Verner is the one who adapted that. This is more of a traditional drawing room adaptation. It has 11 characters. Only six of them are actually shared by the characters in Christie's novel. Battle is in this one. It appeared on the West End, and I think it was, unfortunately, also not a success because (laughs) we have this from our good friend Mark Aldridge, who writes about all sorts of adaptations in his book, Agatha Christie, on screen. And apparently there was a televised extract of the play that aired a day before its official premiere. This is what Mark wrote. This was the first time a West End production had been previewed on television in this way, and the risks of such a venture were made clear in the next day's Daily Mail review. And the review read... (laughs) 
I must leave judgment of Agatha Christie's Toward Zero to the theater critics. I can only say that after seeing half an hour of it on TV, their most glowing enthusiasm would not get me into the theater. Oof. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) But you know what? It gets worse from there, because our first film adaptation is none other than Innocent Lies, released in 1995. And this is a British-French produced thriller. And the biggest mystery to anyone who actually watches this film, and I do not recommend that anyone watch it. You start watching it and you're like, how did this happen? Happen. So again, I'm going to rely on Mark here, on our friend Mark Aldrich. And this is what he says. For many years, Claude Chevrol, one of the pioneering directors of French New Wave in the early 60s, he had been interested in bringing Toward Zero to the screen. Sounds fantastic, right? By the early 1990s, he was still interested, as was the Christie estate, which saw the potential in an artistically motivated retelling of one of Christie's darkest stories, I'm quoting Mark here, in which the reunion of a dysfunctional family leads to murder. And then Mark quotes Matthew Pritchard, who, um, as most of us will probably remember, was for many years the head of the Christie estate, that's Christie's grandson. And here's what Matthew Pritchard said, what I don't remember is how we got from there to where we eventually did (laughs) get to. So by the time this co-production game momentum, Claude Chabrol was nowhere to be seen. And then Matthew Pritchard says, suddenly I remember being sent the odd script written by someone who wasn't Claude Chabrol, and they got further and further away from the story. And the first script was rejected due to the omission of key characters, but then later drafts made an even more problematic change, which is incest. And Matthew Pritchard says, they said to the producers, look, if you want to do this, we'll give you your money back and you can go and make your film. And that is precisely how Innocent Lies made its way to the silver screen. It's a horrible movie and it bears no more than the broadest of similarities to the novel. There's actually a little disclaimer at the end of the credits that says the producers gratefully acknowledge the inspiration provided by Agatha Christie for the making of this film, which does not purport to be a faithful adaptation of any of her work. (laughs) So, wow. Maybe the only adaptation of a Christie novel I've watched that's worse is The Alphabet Murders, which was an adaptation of the ABC Murders, and that was dreadful, too. This might be worse, actually. This might be the worst adaptation, using air quotes, adaptation of a Christie novel I've seen. There is a British policeman, and he's investigating this family. The matriarch of the family is actually played by Joanna Lumley, who wears many turbans in it. And she has a son and a daughter played by a very young and very handsome Stephen Dorff. I'm used to seeing a more weathered Stephen Dorff in e-cigarette ads myself. His sister is played by Gabrielle Anwar, who is mm-hmm. breathtakingly beautiful. They're both very beautiful, a very pretty pair. And they are a brother and sister who are lovers. And that is their secret. And like halfway through the movie, they strangle their mother, Joanna Lumley, together. And the police detective, who is not Superintendent Battle, but he gets involved with Gabrielle Anwar, of course. And he finds out not only that she and her brother are lovers, but that she was involved in this murder. And the end of the movie is the brother trying to strangle the sister, but then the sister stabs him in the neck with scissors, and the police detective finds her. She's sucking her thumb like a little girl, which she does several points throughout the movie because there are all these flashbacks to them as children because the son had a twin who he 
accidentally killed in a bow and arrow accident. Mm, Sound familiar? Did I also mention that he's a tennis player? I mean, there's like bits and pieces Uh. of this that make you think of towards zero, but that's really all it is. I just want to use Mark Aldridge's words here because he does such a good job in his book of summing up both good and bad Christie adaptations. And this is what he says about Innocent Lies. The film seems actively to work to make the audience to dislike it, littered as it is with cryptic dialogue by unlikable characters. Even for those who persevere, there is no payoff, no revelatory performance, no well-crafted plot developments, nor any fascinating psychology. It is a loose collection of unfinished ideas that does not seem to know what to do with itself, beyond hoping that brooding exchanged glances and and unorthodox familial relationships will somehow concoct a captivating performance that will intrigue its audience. It does not. It is worth noting, by the way, that in those flashbacks to them as children, the young Gabrielle Anwar is played by Kira Knightley. So we have lots of close-ups of Kira Knightley's slightly sneering pre-adolescent face. And that is by far the best thing I can say about it. Anyway, moving right along, there is a French language adaptation. We will just mention that that exists. Le Zéro, which uh, came out in 2007. And then the final <laughs> adaptation that we have is 2008. ITV's Marple. This is still with Geraldine McEwen playing Miss Marple. We are in season slash series three, episode three. And you know what? I came out pretty positive on our last ITV's Marple adaptation in The Moving Finger. And -hmm. I'm going to come out pretty positive on this one as well, because this is, of course, not a Miss Marple novel, but it's one of the ones where inserting Miss Marple was fairly seamless. She's just a guest at the house like Mr. Treves is. She knew Lady Tressilian back in the day. We will see that formula used in a future Miss Marple novel. And it's pretty organic. Otherwise, the film is very faithful. There is no incidental homosexuality that is injected in here. There is certainly no incest injected in here. And Neville Strange is played by Greg Wise. And he does a really good job. That role requires a good actor. How dare she run off and leave me? Me! For that miserable little bastard, Adrian Royce. He shall hang. You've got to hang her. And I want to be there to hear her lousy neck crack. Eileen Atkins plays Lady Tresillian. She plays Camilla, and she's always a delight. It is by far, out of what we have, at least English language-wise, our best towards zero adaptation to date, and I'm happy to say that I can recommend it. It is, for sure, one of the better ITV's Marvel adaptations. That is a roundup of the many adaptations of Toward Zero. Let's go into a discussion of our rankings. I would just like to start out by quoting, as I so often want to do when we talk about rankings, our other good friend to the podcast, John Curran. And he makes no bones about it. He opens up his section on Toward Zero in his Agatha Christie's Notebooks tome, saying Toward Zero is superb Christie. The plot resembles a series of Russian dolls with one concealed inside the other. The reader is presented with one solution, and within that is another, and behind that, yet another. I don't know if I would go as far as he does, but I actually do think that this book is mainly working, and I think that this is very high-functioning Christie. The only other tidbit that I think is useful to know as a framing for this conversation, and this is coming from Janet Morgan, Christie biographer from the 80s, Toward Zero was another novel that Christie actually thought about reserving for publication until after she died. We know that she did this with Curtin and Sleeping Murder, obviously, which we will get to at the end, and I think that speaks to how highly she thought of 
the novel, that she would be willing for this to speak for herself after her death. And and I don't think she's wrong. It's a little bit too many circumstances of too many clues for me, which I mean, I don't love that. On the other hand, I think the entire book is really well executed from a structural standpoint. So the mechanics in that sense actually work really pretty well for me, I think. Other than the sort of deus ex Angus. Deus <laughs> ex a, Ang- Angusa? Yeah. His entry into it is odd. It's set up to happen, obviously, but a lot of the clues and a lot of the way that the novel has to end are only through him. And the fact that we find out that he has basically just guessed as to what happened and then made up the testimony. I actually I mean, I like that, but mechanics wise, I'm certainly not giving this like a nine or a 10. I mean, that doesn't bother me because again, I think that it is a trope that fascinated Christie, the idea of the person who's given up hope actually being the one who saves right. the day. Let's be honest, it's a little cheesy. It's a little corny, but I don't think it's invalid. And I think she pulls it off. And I think because it's something that obviously fascinated her. I can feel her engagement with that trope, even though it might be a little corny and a little convenient. My take on plot mechanics and structure here is that I agree. I think it's really well structured, but I was thinking about what's happening in this book. And I think you could make the argument that we've seen so much of this before, which often is an argument we can make in Christie. But, you know, here we have Yet another love triangle, right, which we, of course, had in Death on the Nile and Evil Under the Sun and Five Little Pigs. We have yet another double bluff motif where Neville is the most obvious suspect, but then he couldn't have done it. And then in the end, Neville did, in fact, do it. And we had that exact pattern in The Mysterious Affair at Styles and The Murder at the Vicarage. And then we also have, perhaps most seemingly damning, we have another series of murders committed for the dubious motivation of implicating someone else who will subsequently hang for those murders because we, of course, had that exact motivation in Murder is Easy. And yet, my argument is that this book features some of the best possible versions of all those classic tropes. So taking them one by one, I think the love triangle, you know, we noted in previous episodes how in all those other novels that heavily feature love triangles, it's always the original couple who are the true couple, right? Which Mm -hmm. is almost like Christy wish fulfillment as someone whose first marriage broke apart. Simon and Lynette, Patrick and Christine, Amias and Caroline, they're all still actually in love with each other. Right. here... We have a major variation on that theme, right? I mean, it's not even a variation on the theme. It's just different because the original couple is fundamentally broken. Like it's a total horror show. The first wife is scared for her life because she realizes too late her husband is a total psycho and she's doing all she can to get away from him. And the second wife is just clueless. That to me is brilliant. So I love the use of the love triangle because she's doing something different with it once again. And then the double bluff, I think, is particularly good here because it is backed up with such airtight evidence. I mean, there are so many clues swimming in this novel, but I think that they all settle down and make sense and are all accounted for in a way that, like, for example, in The Murder at the Vicarage, which felt a little overstuffed, they weren't. And I think she's just, she's really making good on the double bluff because it really seems like Neville had to do it. Then it really seems like Neville couldn't have done it. And it really seems like Audrey had to have done it. And then she basically confesses and then Neville actually did it. And that's the kind of Russian doll of 
effect that I think John right. was talking about. It's right. a particularly effective double bluff, much more so than what we saw in Styles or Vicarage. And then the motivation, I would argue, yes, it's always slightly far-fetched to imagine someone committing a murder for the purposes of framing another person and then having them hanged for it. But it is much easier to believe here than in Murder is Easy. A, I think that's because in Murder is Easy, there were a whole bunch of people who were killed in that story. Like, it was a veritable serial killer's worth of killings. Whereas here, the intention was to kill just one person. And yes, it ended up being two, but the Mr. Treves murder was spur of the moment and not even very well planned out. It just happened to work. So for me, that doesn't affect believability or anything like that. And then it's just so much more believable from a character standpoint that it's a husband's ire directed against his wife for leaving him as opposed to the unquenched flame that a spinster has been holding out for (laughs) decades for this man who refused to marry her. Like it's all just a little melodramatic and weak and murder is easy, but that's what, what's so powerful about this story because it is a marriage because we know that screwed up things happen in the course of many a marriage. And it's horrifying that Neville really wants to punish her. So to me, even though it's the same motivation, she's doing an A plus job of something she had done like a C plus job of in a previous novel. Here's the funny thing. I think we have the same ranking for it, though, which was a seven. Yeah. (laughs) It's not an eight or a nine. It's certainly not a 10. I just think it's really good. It's a seven. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, let's talk about plot credibility. I think this score is pretty high there as well, because as we just discussed, a crazy husband wanting to punish his ex-wife is pretty believable. Even the way he accomplishes it, I would argue, yes, it's that Rube Goldbergian puzzle mystery solution. He's pulling on bell wires. He's climbing up ropes half naked. But it still could have happened. It's not murder in Mesopotamia where the head had to go out the window at the right exact moment. It's not Hercule Poirot's Christmas where we're dealing with everything having to fall in the right way and balloons on the floor and just that was a bit overly elaborate. I feel like it actually is pretty credible. I came out on a seven for plot credibility as well. I went with a six because all of the sort of semi-naked rope climbing out of the water in the middle of the night was a little too much for me. But But he's crazy. I mean, he's a crazy, like he's... (laughs) And honestly, that goes to, you know, we gave higher marks to plot credibility on and then there were none. It's like, that's crazy too, but he's actually crazy. And we we rarely have that kind of a character in Christie novel. That's true. I can be convinced over You could be coaxed. You could be coaxed to a seven. Okay. Let's talk about series long character. We obviously only have one, and that would be Superintendent Battle. This is by far the most we've ever gotten of Superintendent Battle. I know, so it's it's almost hard to call him a series-long character, because I'm just like, well, I don't know, what was he like in the other ones? I know. This is also the last we're going to see of him. He was referred to as an elderly man at one point, so we definitely do get the sense that he aged a bit, because he certainly seemed younger in those bundle books in Secret of Chimneys and The Seven Dials. He still has a daughter in high school on this one. Yeah, but they do mention that he has four children, and she's her youngest, and she's 16. So, he's definitely older. And his nephew is fully grown, and also a policeman. There's lots of references to his square features, and his sort of plotting way, which is by far Superintendent Battle's most recognizable characteristic, that he's not brilliant, but he just muddles his way through things and eventually gets there in the end. My biggest concern about him is he would have sent Audrey to the gallows had it not been for Angus showing up at the last minute. Wouldn't he have? Probably, but honestly, I mean, I find that a little believable because he's not brilliant. He doesn't have the supernatural know-how that Poirot has, where Poirot just always knows the answer and he knows the truth. But 
superintendent battle is open to new evidence and he takes the time to sift through and allow the truth to rise to the surface, if you will. So he could have done a worse job, but I actually find that very believable that this almost was an unjust outcome. I also like that his hand was compared to a cardboard ham. (laughs) I know, I did like that too. In any case, I actually think we also came out at the same number here, which is a six. Yeah, that's what I had. Yeah, Battle is just not one of her strongest detectives. He's he's fine. And then book-specific characters is pretty good. I think that Neville Strange is terrifying. And I think that with her less is more approach to character, Christy does a really good job of making him convincingly terrifying. Raymond Chandler had that snobby thing that he said about Agatha Christie when he said that she fakes character, which, you know, is his way of saying that she's just relying on stereotype and cliche and not really putting in the work and her characters don't really exist. And Laura Thompson actually uses Neville Strange and Toward Zero to refute that. She says, Neville is a gentleman tennis player, a rich and smiling amateur, the kind of person whom Christie's detractors would accuse her of favoring on purely snob ground. In fact, she is penetrating the gentlemanly persona with cool-eyed accuracy. Neville uses his good loser act to conceal the fact that he actually cannot bear to lose. Beneath layers of well-bred concealment, he is desperate to settle the score with his ex-wife, and his public image helps him to do so. So it is not Agatha Christie, but Neville himself who is faking character, insofar as that phrase means anything at all. I think that's true. I love what she does with him. And even though it is a little, you could say, cartoony when the mask comes off at the end, I was convinced. He's certainly the most compelling character in this. I mean, the others are a little bit variants of people we've seen before. Audrey, in particular, Kay is a little ham-fisted. Agreed. Kay is probably the weakest character in the novel. I found Audrey annoying too. I thought she was well rendered, but it is a little bit of a Christy type. She made me think of Caroline Krell, and Christy likes to describe people this way. She was a little like a ghost, but you felt at the same time that a ghost might be possessed of more reality than a live human being. Her very negative presence actually was a stronger presence than someone right. who was more vibrantly alive, a la Kay. Strange. Right. You know who I actually also liked a lot? Mary Alden. And I think it's just because the role of companion is normally inhabited by a sort of fretful, silly spinster type. And I appreciated her quiet confidence throughout the novel. And I also liked that she had genuine affection for Lady Tresillian. I think a seven is what um, Mm -hmm. we both landed on. It's not superlative, but it's really good. In terms of setting and tone, I mentioned that tiny section from the murderer's point of view in the beginning, which is unique. I don't think we've seen that done before in Christie. I'm not sure if we're going to see it again, but it worked for me. It set an eerie, darker tinged tone that Christie managed to sustain up until the very end. And once the murderer is revealed, of course, the tone is going to lighten a bit. But I really appreciated that. Where did you come out on this, Catherine? I was debating between a six or a seven. I came out on an eight. So if you're okay with a seven, you could do I'm fine with a seven. seven. And then we mentioned Stuck in Its Time. There really isn't a lot going on here. It's really just that last exchange between Angus McWhorter and Audrey. I think we established the rule in Peril at End House that if you end on such an upsetting note, I think it's just like has... It's a deduction. It's one deduction. I think we get one yes. deduction. It really is just for those final lines because, wow, does that feel like a misstep. Okay, so... That brings us to a grand total of 7 plus 7 plus 6 plus 7 plus 7 minus 1. 33 points, putting towards zero in a tie with a number of titles here, Catherine. So we have some thinking to do. Currently at 33 points, we have 
In Rank Order, Parallel End House, Cards on the Table, The ABC Murders, and Sad Cypress. And this is perfect to me because I actually 100% believe that Toward Zero belongs somewhere within this grouping of novels. I think I would put it just above Sad Cypress, actually. I don't think it's better than Peril at End House Cards on the Table or the ABC Murders. No, but uh, yeah, it could be just above Sad Cypress. Just above Sad Cypress? Okay. That puts Toward Zero in 10th place, knocking poor Sad Cypress out of the top 10. Probably the best nasty little story in novel form that we've read since And Then There Were None. Yeah, that's definitely true. I think some people would say that The Moving Finger falls in that category as well, but as listeners know, we are not as big of fans of that one as some other people are. That brings us to an end of Towards Zero. Join us next time for a short story episode. We are going back to Parker Pine. We are gluttons for punishment. Our next story we'll be covering in that collection is The Gate of Baghdad. Join us for that. And of course, our next novel a couple of weeks from now will be Death Comes as the End. That is Christie's Ancient Egypt set novel. Definitely a bit of an outlier there within the canon. We would love to hear your thoughts on Toward Zero and anything else. Email us at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha. Our Instagram handle is at All About Agatha. And our Twitter handle is at All About the Dame. You can also find Catherine at Brobcat. Please take a moment to rate and review us and help other people find the podcast. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.